Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I have made no secret on this show of my mixed feelings about the Professional Triathletes Organization, or PTO. I am very much in support of the professional athletes having a say in how the sport is run and in ensuring that they get paid a living wage and that as many of them get paid as well as possible. But in 2021 at least, I wasn't won over by the events that they put on, and I was kind of surprised by some of the things that went on between the organization and the athletes themselves. For example, the year-end rankings seemed to have caused a lot of consternation for some. But anyone who spoke out about them were quickly silenced, and some questionable heavy-handed tactics from the leaders' organization to keep everyone in line left me wondering if the athletes were really the ones in charge. As 2022 is now a month in, the challenges for the PTO continue. First, there was the CEO of the organization, Sam Renouf, stating quite publicly on various podcasts that the age group fees for PTO races would be, quote, significantly lower than what you see in the market, end quote, only to then open registration for the signature American event in Dallas in September, the uh, U.S. Open, as it's being called, with an entry fee that is pretty much identical for what you pay for a WTC 70.3 race. Now, I'm guessing that the PTO would say that, look, we offer more value at that price since, for example, finisher picks are included, and you get to finish your race and then watch the pros race. But I would question if everyone participating and paying would see it the same way. I certainly don't. Add to that the convoluted ways that the pros are being invited to these races. That's right, they have to be invited. 40 pros will be invited to these events based on their PTO ranking. And guess what? Points acquired at those invite-only events will be worth an extra 5%. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing where those top 40 will be able to easily stay in the top 40 because they're getting more points by showing up at these invite-only race. And it's going to be very difficult for someone outside of that group to break in. Suddenly, the PTO, instead of seeming like an egalitarian sort of labor organization, is beginning to sound a lot more like an organization set up to protect those at the top at the expense of those on the outside, which is kind of why I thought the PTO was established in the first place. Maybe I was wrong. At any rate, I'm not sure what to make of all of it, but I do know how to get some answers. In the coming months, I'm going to have some guests on the show who can answer some of these questions. This is going to include established pros, newer pros trying to break into the sport, and the CEO of the PTO himself, Sam Renouf. So there's a lot to look forward to, and hopefully we will be able to gain some clarity through the episodes that are going to be coming in the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, if you have some burning questions about the PTO that you would like answered, send them to me, and I'll save them up to pose to Sam Renouf and others in the coming weeks and months. On the show today, I'm joined by a guest to discuss a very timely question that was submitted by a listener. As you no doubt know, the Omicron variant of COVID has been rapidly sweeping the globe, and many endurance athletes, including me, have been infected. One particular listener wanted to know if there have been any updated guidelines on how and when to return to training after a COVID infection, and whether or not anything more has been learned about the potentially dangerous post-COVID myocarditis that really is the health issue of concern after any such infection. Well, my guest and I are going to discuss this coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by a woman that few will likely have heard of, but who has had an outsized impact on many other women and their families for several years now. Brandy Ramirez is a wife, a mother, and a triathlete who is also a breast cancer survivor. A few years ago, while dealing with her own cancer diagnosis and treatment, Brandy developed the Facebook group She Strong, a place where women could come together and share their experiences of illness and recovery related to cancer. Since recovering herself, Brandy has returned to the sport that she loves and has brought her energy and determination to a vision that she has for empowering women like herself through our sport. She tells me about all of that and much more that's going to be coming up in a short while. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a moment to acknowledge a new Patreon supporter of this podcast, Kath Carpenter. 
Kath is just the latest of a growing number of listeners who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they wanted to help support this program while at the same time get access to all kinds of bonus content that is only available to my supporters. This includes bonus interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Dan Emfield, and Alex Larson, along with video talks by me on the, on the science of tapering and off-season health and wellness. Plus, this week, there's a brand new bonus episode featuring an interview with British professional triathlete Laura Siddle. Laura will be featured on the podcast in an upcoming episode as well, but she was very gracious to spend some extra time and answer some questions just for my Patreon supporters. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can gain access to all of that right now. The URL is www.patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering For the medical segment today, I'm going to address an extremely timely question from a longtime listener and new Patreon supporter of the podcast, Kath Carpenter. Kath wrote to me wondering about whether or not there have been any updated guidelines on safe return to training and racing after being infected with COVID-19, and specifically with the Omicron variant. I say that this is a timely question, partly because here in the United States, we are very likely right at the crest of the Omicron wave as I'm recording this, and infections, I hope, are soon to begin decreasing, but leaving in its wake millions who've been newly infected, and many of those will be interested in the answer to this because they're triathletes. It's also timely because if you heard the last episode of this program, then you know that I am one of those who is so afflicted. I had COVID for the first time almost three weeks ago now, and despite being double vaccinated and boosted, was pretty sick for a few days there. I've pretty much completely recovered now and gotten back to training, but even though I am pretty up to date on the medical literature on this issue, I found myself a little unsure on how to proceed once I felt better and ready to get back on my bike. Of course, the reason for all the uncertainty about this question is the rare but still very real danger of post-COVID myocarditis. Last year, I covered this subject in episode 49, but at the time, I was a pretty it w- that was a pretty newly observed phenomenon. And in the intervening time, I wondered if anything new had been discovered about how often this entity is seen, how much of a concern it should be in people who are not hospitalized with COVID, and whether or not vaccination confers any special protections. Well, to discuss all of this and to give an overview of some institution-specific guidelines, I've invited back to the podcast my friend and colleague, Dr. Spencer Tomberg. Spencer joined me way back in Episode 9 to talk about the REDS, or Relative Energy Deficiency Syndrome, and I've asked him back again now because he surveyed the medical literature in order to develop return-to-play guidelines for Denver Health, the hospital that we both work at here in Colorado. Welcome back to the TriDoc Podcast, Spencer. All right, uh, Jeff, thanks for having me here. It's uh, good to be back and to discuss this topic that is uh, is a really good question, and um, I'm not sure we have the full data, but we can, dis- we can discuss everything that we have out there to try to uh, get a little clarity on this. Yeah, I find we very rarely have all of the answers, but we do our best yeah. with what information we have. First, uh, Spencer, just before we get into this, uh, give us a little detail on who you are, what your background is, and what gives you the expertise to answer this question. Sure. So I am, uh, I'm an emergency medicine physician, and then I did a sports medicine fellowship uh, afterwards, and then I returned to, to work at Denver Health in the emergency department. And I also work in the orthopedic clinic. So I try to kind of bridge my uh, interests of uh, all the medicine that's behind uh, being an emergency medicine physician with uh, the sports medicine background as well, too. And so one of the questions that we had at Denver Health was we take care of, especially at the beginning, it was kids. Um, And we take care of a lot of kids who were getting COVID. And how are we going to return them to play uh, um, and do that in a way that was reasonable so that we weren't taking away uh, their opportunity to be athletic, um, but also safe for them moving forward. So I worked with our uh, cardiologists at Denver Health, our pediatric cardiologists, um, and our infectious disease doctors to put together um, some guidelines to to um, help guide people in the institution to return their patients to play. And 
again, the reason this is so important is this uh, notion of myocarditis. And I, and I looked at the guidelines that you developed. Uh, I have what you sent me. Thank you for that. And it's actually interesting because it's pretty much the exact same table that was taken from the paper that I discussed a year and a half ago uh, around yep. now. Uh, I, so I gather there's really been nothing new on that front. Nothing has come out. No, no new studies of um, surveillance studies or anything like that. There, there hasn't been a lot that's come out that's changed in the year, uh, in the first year since we, um, since we looked at. There was a study that came out of um, that looked at professional sports leagues, kind of across the table. Um, and what they did, what they did is they looked at all their athletes who were diagnosed with COVID, and then, um, the, you know, what they really have there in the professional leagues is they have. Uh, set medical protocols. So the NFL's protocols that I was looking at last night are actually are if you have mild disease or have um, you know like a little cough for a couple of days, um, no fever, or you don't feel bad at all, then you can basically return to play without much of a clearance. Uh, but if you have fever for two days or more, at that point you're getting a pretty extensive medical workup, including uh, a visit to the doc, um, uh, EKG, and troponins, and then maybe uh, echo based off based off that. So. Those are things that most athletes and most people in society just don't have access to if they're sick for two days. Um, in those cohorts, they found that about three, uh, the numbers exactly were 3.8% of their um, of their athletes ended up needing further cardiac testing. Um, if they met that, that protocol, if they were put into the higher risk protocol based off the length of their symptoms. So, you know, 3.8% is, um, is a decent amount. Um, and then those those athletes went on to have further testing. Most of them ended up having cardiac MRI um, and only two of the cohort, which was 0.3% uh, ended up having uh, confirmed pericarditis. Uh, so, you know, that is uh, three pericarditis, not pericarditis. That was, that was confirmed. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Let me go. So it's Two athletes had confirmed pericarditis. Three athletes had confirmed myocarditis. So there were both um, there were both uh, uh, areas of inflammation on the pericardium and in the myocardium um, off that study. But you know that was showing that it is not uh, it is not something that's seen a lot, but it's not um, totally zero in the professional sports leagues, and that's probably where we have the best data from right now because they have the most. Uh, most robust screening protocols. So just to break this down and put it into plain English, we're, we're talking about a large group of professional athletes who had COVID, who probably had pretty mild disease. I mean, we're assuming Aaron Rodgers isn't one of them because he's unvaccinated. Yep. <laughs> we won't go there. Uh, and uh, they come back after this and their protocol says, if you've had disease for longer than how many days was it, you said? The NFL specifically was two days, and I don't know the I don't know the specifics of this was uh, the NBA, the um, Major League Soccer, MLB, which is baseball, National Hockey League, and then NFL. So all I know specifically is is NFL. Yeah, the, NFL. the NFL was two days of symptoms. Wow. So I mean, everybody's gonna. I mean. Unless you were completely asymptomatic, everybody's going to have at least two days of symptoms. So basically, they're testing everybody, which, as you said, is not going to happen in the population. Yeah. But when they tested everybody, 3% of them had abnormal echocardiograms, then went on to have MRIs, and a very tiny fraction, a tenth of those people, ended up having some inflammation either in the pericardium, which is not dangerous, or the myocardium, which is potentially dangerous. The question then is... How dangerous is it? And that's the thing we don't know. So that's you're talking about, yeah, that's what we don't know. So we're talking three people who had myocardial inflammation out of the initial cohort that we don't know what that number was, but it's, uh, it, you know, it's less than half the a initial, percent. The initial, initial cohort was 780 odd. Uh, okay. So three people out of 780. Okay. Correct. So three out of 780 had myocardial inflammation after having pretty mild disease. So right. we're talking about a small number, but it's not zero. The, not the zero. other question is, is, you know, how big a risk is it? Would it have been if those people had gone back and done something? We don't know. Now we, we of course know the high profile, you know, case reports of people who had sudden death from this. So it does exist. It is a potential risk. We just don't know. And so much of this is based on the unknown. And that's why, these protocols are so conservative, and I'm, I'm looking at the protocol that comes again from that paper that goes back almost a year and a half now. Can, looking can at, I add one other piece? Yeah, there, kind of yeah. stratification. 
So the um, there was a study that came out of circulation, and it was in the I've got the I'll, I'll give you the date here in a minute, but um, they looked at the total number of sudden cardiac deaths that they could find over a twenty or thirty year span, which ended up uh, during athletic competition. So um, they found that there were one thousand forty nine deaths that could be um, related to a cardiovascular cause, and of those, myocarditis accounted for forty one of the of the uh, of the thousand of them. So that you know the if you look at everybody that plays sports in over 20 or 30 years that we have a thousand Southern cardiac deaths is actually pretty small. Um, but of those P of those, uh, athletes that died about 4% of those were related to myocarditis. So when we're, I'm not sure how that translates, but that also is not insignificant when we look at the number of people of, um, how that relates to people who die from cardiac causes, uh, during sports. <laughs> Well, it's not insignificant, and it's more important when you consider that we know that COVID affects the heart. Uh, that's that's the issue here, is that we know that COVID affects the heart. Certainly, we know that the more significant your disease is, for example, those who are hospitalized, uh, those who have uh, the need for a ventilator, those who are you know having very significant disease, those people have a much higher risk. Again, we don't know exactly how high, but we know it's more than three out of 780, um, yeah. those patients have a much higher risk. When they've looked at that, it's about one in five. So about one in five patients, uh, hospitalized patients have been found to have, uh, have had some myocardial involvement when they've uh, looked at that. Right. So I think we need to think, okay. And, and, you know, it comes back to what I asked before, which is, do we know if the vaccine confers any protection? And I think we don't know if the vaccine protects your heart, but we do know that the vaccine protects against severe illness. So you're clearly, you're taking your risk of myocardial involvement from one in five because severe illness is associated with a one in five. So you're taking yep. your, your risk of severe myocarditis from one in five down to this, you know, probably 0.3%. So that's a pretty impressive reason, again, to get vaccinated. Yep. Um, and, and something that I think most people listening to this program can take as reassuring. If you have been vaccinated, if you have been boosted, if you then ended up getting Omicron, as so many people are then waiting until you've healed, waiting until you've gotten over that illness, you can be somewhat reassured that the likelihood that you've had myocarditis develop out of that is going to be very low. That doesn't mean it's zero, but it's going to be very low. So you can at least feel comfortable about that. So that's a good thing. Um, then we need to consider, okay, so I, I think also before we continue with uh, just these protocols, which are really, really focused on the heart, we also have to consider you know, how much pulmonary involvement there is, because yeah. even in mild disease, I mean, you and I both had it, we both were coughing yeah. quite a bit. And uh, yeah, that that puts a, a damper on how much you're able to do in terms of, you know, exerting yourself and doing endurance sport. And, and these protocols don't even take that into account, because I think, at least in my conversations with people, uh, you know, if you have pulmonary involvement, you're just not going to be able to exert yourself anyways. Is that yeah. kind of where you've come down on this? You know, I haven't, I actually haven't looked specifically at the pulmonary involvement. I know that I played hockey last night and it was two weeks after I, I was kind of cleared to get back out and it did not, I mean, I, I can skate and get around, but it didn't feel quite the same yet. So, um, I'm sure that there's some lingering effects that, uh, that go, that I've seen kind of personally. And I, I think that they're probably more self-limiting of performance, but if you have, if you have pulmonary and other things going on too, those are going to kind of build on top of each other. So I think we have to consider that as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, to, speaking from the personal perspective, I, I think it's fair to say that while you have COVID, while you're having symptoms, not only do you not feel like doing anything, you really shouldn't be doing anything. Right, I mean, let's yeah. just give your body time to heal. Don't, don't, don't do it. It's funny. I was talking with somebody yesterday who said, oh, I had COVID. I was really mild disease. I was out running. I had a great 5K. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you may feel great, but uh, maybe take it easy. <laughs> so anybody listening, if you're in the throes of COVID, even if you have mild symptoms, please give yourself a few days of not exerting yourself because you may feel fine, but your lungs and your heart are definitely undergoing some kind of illness, even though you may not be exhibiting terrible symptoms. So we know that all the guidelines say give yourself five to 10 days uh, of not doing anything. And then uh, let's just look at your um, uh, your algorithm. Uh, yep. Then it really comes down to how sick were you? 
right? In yep. terms of how you should, what you should do next for specifically considering whether or not you should get cardiac testing. And this goes back again to this paper that I talked about about a year and a half ago. If you were hospitalized, honestly, I'm not even going to get into the nitty gritty. Uh, if you were hospitalized, you should not be going back to activity unless you get some kind of testing. So we're just going to yep. leave that out for now because that's not really who we're talking to. I think who we're talking to in this segment is people who did not require hospitalization either because they were vaccinated and so they didn't get sick or if they were unvaccinated, they just were fortunate and didn't have a significant case. So then we need to break it into these three categories. You have asymptomatic, mild symptoms and moderate symptoms and take us down those different pathways. Yeah. So I think the, the trick in all of this is that they're not defined by the society. So, um, there is asymptomatic, actually that is defined. You did it. That's very well defined. You don't have any symptoms. You're asymptomatic. Uh, at that point, after you clear your CDC guideline, uh, after you clear the, the recommendation, the recommended time from the CDC of the infectious control period, you can gradually return to activity. Now, there was a study out in the NCA that looked at athletes who were asymptomatic and actually found, um, I can pull it up, I have it on another screen, but actually found a, a reasonable amount of possible myocardial involvement in those asymptomatic uh, college athletes. But it begged the question of, these were really high-level athletes who were training at, at a high level. They didn't have any control groups, so they saw some changes in the heart but they weren't able to say, oh, that was actually not due to their training, but that was actually due to, to COVID that caused it. So um, most of the, the guidelines that I've seen that have gone through have really pushed more towards asymptomatic. There's not a lot of, um, there's not, uh, there's not a lot of bang for the buck in terms of um, testing from there. So, you know, the NFL clears those patients um, and so do the, uh, the recommendations um, of our cardiology uh, colleagues. So, Mild, the trick here is the mild or moderate symptoms. So mild symptoms in the NFL language, which is not on this, is you have a cough, you don't have a fever greater than 104 degrees for two days. Um, you feel just a little bad. That's who they group into the mild symptom category. Um, those those uh, people, again, can be put into the five-day kind of re uh, make sure you don't get anybody sick protocol and then a slow return to activity after that. The moderate symptoms where it is not defined here, and we can talk a little bit about, I know we're not talking about pediatrics, but the pediatrics actually um, guides that as less than four days of symptoms. I think I would be a little more careful with adults and put them where the NFL is doing it on the two days of symptoms there. Um, but it's not clearly defined how long you have to have symptoms for. If you're in that moderate uh, group, then we want you to see your, to, to see your doctor to get cleared. And that Clearance includes uh, EKG and a troponin, plus minus an echocardiogram. So what we found is, I think it depends what system you're in, right? Like if you're in a system that has a ton of resources, they might be able to get everybody that comes through the door an EKG, a troponin, and an echocardiogram within two days and get people back on their feet and moving again. Our system can't get uh, echocardiograms for people that quickly. So we really need to work more on um, physical exam, exactly how their symptoms are, make sure there's no big changes on the EKG. The EKG is a little bit tricky because uh, it's only, I can't remember the exact number, but it's in like the 40 to 50% range of being sensitive for picking up any changes due to myocarditis. So you could have myocarditis and still have a normal EKG. So that's why we couple it with the troponin, which is going to show us if there's any actual strain of the heart um, for that. And then in our system, if those, if either of those are abnormal, then we get them in for an echocardiogram. And then I, I need to interrupt for a second because, because yeah. you know, looking through all of this, these are extremely conservative and I get it. I understand. Yes. Did you do that? Did you go get a cardiogram and a troponin? No. Okay. Neither did I. I. I had symptoms yeah. for more than two days. I know you did yeah. as well. So yeah. based on what you're saying, both of us should have gotten a cardiogram and a troponin. Neither yeah, of us did. Neither of us did, but here's, here's what I think is actually really important. And we, and we talked about this the other day, then I'll let you break it. I think the people that are listening to your podcast are going to be people that are going to want to push themselves. And it's hard. I, I think the, the most, the hardest thing about this is, do you have people that will actually listen to their body when their body tells them to stop? And so the next page down has some recommendations on a return to play protocol and this is what I use to grade myself to get back to activity is 
I'm going to start off at a lower level. I'm going to do that for a short amount of time. I'm going to make sure I'm okay with that. I'm going to push a little bit harder. I'm going to push a little bit harder. I'm going to give myself four or five days to make sure that I'm back up to the to the level where I can really perform before I can before I'm going to uh, give myself permission to to move faster. Now, I think the real question is, you know, if you have high level athletes who are training at uh, at a significant level, will they listen to themselves and will they tell themselves that they're actually not feeling good and give themselves permission to be seen by a physician when they need to? That would be my biggest concern. So I think that this page and I will somehow I will get this page either I will link to this page in the show notes somehow is this page available on the Denver Health it website is. it is it's, okay so uh, well, where where it is is it it's actually based off of BJSM recommendations which is the British Journal of Sports Medicine so okay. I can get you that those recommendations all right so we'll have the link to this in the show notes and I would urge everybody to take a look at this because uh this protocol to me makes a lot more sense. The only thing about this protocol that I didn't love and that I was going to mention was stage yep. five, earliest day 21. I felt like that did was not pushing it dates. a little bit. Yeah. You didn't change. The, I, I missed changing the dates. That was when there was a 10 day self-isolation period. And right. then you had 11 days to kind of work back up. Got that it. will come down with CDC guidelines. Are on. Got it. So, so just to explain what I'm referring to. So uh, Spencer's done a great job of explaining what this looks like. And I will say that I did this. I didn't know about this, but I did this just naturally. Um, yeah. And this is how I would advise people to do. And anybody listening to this, I would strongly encourage, if you know somebody, if you've gone through COVID, if you're going through it right now, you should take a look at this. And basically what it talks about is just a very gradual, you know, Give yourself time to get through the illness and then very gradually returning to your training. Uh, I spoke to my coach because I know myself, uh, like Spencer made the um, the reference to athletes who are going to push themselves and aren't going to listen to their bodies, uh, guilty as charged. So I told my coach, I said, look, I'm going to need a solid week of low intensity training. And so that's what he scheduled me for. He scheduled me for low volume, low intensity, and we ramped it up very slowly over the week. And by the end of the week, I was feeling pretty good. And I told him, you know what? I felt pretty good. Let's increase it over the next week and see how it goes. And I gave feedback over every single day. And by the end of week two, I was just about back up to normal. And the thing that I was referring to in this as being overly conservative is that uh, on this particular protocol, it says that you are back to normal training progression by day 21. And that's where uh, Spencer agrees it needs to be reduced a little bit. And I, I think by day 14 to 17, I think would probably make more sense just based on my own personal experience. Although I have spoken to other people uh, who have told me that they've needed 21 days. So I think there's going to be a range there, but the, the key and, and you, you hit the nail on the head. The key is you have to be ready to listen to your body and you have to be ready to seek help. And, you know, when I looked before uh, starting this conversation, I, I, you know, again, went to see if there's anything new and it's all the same stuff. Listen to your body, any unexplained chest pain, any unexplained uh, fatigue or, you know, more shortness of breath at exertion than you would expect. You need to reach out to a healthcare provider to get checked, to get that cardiogram, to get that troponin and possibly an echo after that. And so yep. I think this makes a lot of sense, this, uh, this uh, advancing protocol. And I think this is what I would definitely tell people to follow as they come back from illness. And it's what, like I said, I did. Um, and feel like uh, worked for me and I'm, I bet would work for most people. And, and it's what you're recommending as well. I mean, I, that's what I did for myself. I can say, I can, I can yeah. say that, and, you know, I think, uh, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to do it this way. And it, it felt natural in terms of where I'm at, especially if you can listen to yourself and, and do that. The, the last caveat I'd put on it are there specific recommendations. If you're over 65, you have pre-existing cardiac or pulmonary issues, then that is a different game. You just go get, you see your doc, you have a conversation with them. You get a little bit of testing because your risks are going to be much higher of having. Um, Absolutely. Care. And thank you for bringing that up because I think, you know, you and I, uh, you know, I'm older than you are, but I, you know, I'm still in a older group where probably not that high risk, but still a higher risk. And yes, we need to remember that, that, uh, you know, you and I are not representative of everyone and that there are going to be people who have higher risks and they have to take those seriously. But for the majority of people listening who are going to be baseline healthy, 
generally, you know, in good condition coming into this, they need to follow a gradual progression return, but be very attuned to their own body. If you're over 65, if you have any underlying health issues, especially cardiac issues, no matter what your age, then you need to definitely check with your doctor before returning yep. to, to training. So I, I 100% agree with that. I think that's excellent advice. And thank you for uh, reminding me. Well, um, yep. I, how how did you find it? Uh, and I'm curious because, um, you, you're an active guy, uh, you know, uh, in your experience and talking to others who've gone through this, um, do you think that being active and fit gave you some kind of not protection, but I don't know, resiliency to this in any way? Um, I think it gives resiliency across the board. And, you know, I think one of the, I think one of the interesting things about putting this process together, this isn't, this is about how we created this was talking to Steve Federico, who's our head of pediatrics at Denver health. And he realized that this was all based off expert opinion and that it was very conservative. And his big concern was about the mental health of our kids when we were doing this. Um, and I think that's the other thing to recognize is that being active is a big part of a lot of people's mental health. And that uh, we need to balance our conservative medical care with our uh, an equally conservative amount of being compared to, concerned about mental health. And so that's why um, we really work to get kids, especially if we can do it safely, to get them back and playing again. Where we're not holding them out for extended periods of time. And I, it's the same for me. Like if I'm held out for an extended period of time of doing what I love doing, it, it makes me grumpy and, uh, it does not improve my life. And so, uh, I think that, you know, it probably built resilience through the disease, but it also rebuilds resilience through my life in general. So, um, that was, a, I talked around that a lot, but uh, no, I that's, think- that's, I think that finishing comment is, is the most important thing. Cause I agree with you. I think it does build resilience into your life. And I, I found for myself, it's hard for me to compare, right? Because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an, I'm an N of one. Uh, I felt like, um, that first week coming back after COVID was exceptionally difficult. I found every, uh, tra- uh you know, I didn't swim right away. I took, uh, I think I took, so I was diagnosed. I think I was out of the pool for a total of about 12 to 14 days before I went back to swimming. My first swim back wasn't too bad, although I, I couldn't really swim as hard as I wanted to. My first runs and bikes for the first week that I was back running and biking, everyone was an effort. Like none of them were, I didn't have any chest pain or palpitations or anything, but I just found them harder to do than I would have expected. And then uh, after the first week of training, I was finally starting to feel better. And cardiovascularly, I felt like things were coming around. But then I felt like my muscles were just tired and yeah. uh, more tired than they should have been for missing a week of training. So that was interesting. And now finally, after a full, I think it's now two and a half weeks, I, I finally feel like I'm back on track and and you know, everything's back where it should be. So it was an interesting process, certainly much worse than, you know, any kind of respiratory illness I've had before. Um, and uh, I hope this is uh, helpful for people listening who either uh, are going through this or, you know, are going to come across it because let's face it, Omicron's cutting a swath through everyone. <laughs> any, uh, any final comments before we uh, finish up here? Oh, thanks for having yeah. me on. I appreciate it. It's, it's, uh, it's good to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, uh, Spencer, for being here. And I'm sure that uh, there will be other topics uh, when we'll have you back in the future. Sounds great. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. I am joined today on the podcast by Brandy Ramirez. 
She is the proud mom of four amazing kids, ranging from 21 to seven years old, three of them girls, one boy. She has a bachelor's degree in science and health and is a certified Ironman coach and a coach for TriDot, not to be confused with TriDoc. She is also a certified coach in yoga and Pilates. And beyond that, Brandy has dealt with some personal adversity. She is a stage three breast cancer survivor, and her cancer journey led her to create She Strong, an Arizona nonprofit corporation, which allows her to meet amazing women and be a part of their own cancer journey. She's also an Ironman triathlon competitor with a couple of 70.3 races in her past. And in 2022, she has three races scheduled, including Ironman Alaska for her first full. But what she's looking forward to the most is hosting the first ever She Strong Triathlon in October of this year called The Monarch. For right now, though, I am very pleased that she's able to join me right here on the TriDog Podcast. Welcome, Brandy. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. So, Brandy, before we get to some of your personal journey and uh, talking a little bit about the Monarch that's coming up later this year, I want to know first how you got into triathlon and what's your history in the sport? Um, So I got into triathlon from a dear friend of mine. Her name is Anna. She is still, I mean, I think I'm too old to call her my best friend. So we're more like sisters at this point. You can, you can go with BFF. I think it's my BFF, Anna. (laughs) (laughs) So she was training herself for an Ironman race. And um, I remember the conversation, you know, I asked her what it entailed. She was doing a full And so she explained it to me and I remember asking her, like, you do this in one day. And she just kind of looked at me and said, this is not a three day event. I was like, but it should be. I mean, the last part's a full marathon for goodness sakes. Um, And that was how it started. I got intrigued for me. I always thought that I was pretty tough in my head. So I wanted to find out just how tough I was and and if Ironman had a breaking point for me. And what was the sort of process of your journey then did you did you go right to a 70.3 or did you start with shorter distances I started with shorter distances Anna was my coach at the time and we you know we we trained from the triathlon bible right yeah. <laughs> so the only way we could train back then and I did a sprint built up to an olympic and then I hit the 70.3 That's great and uh over how long did it take you to get to to that It took me a long time, honestly, to get to a 70.3. It seems like every time I trained for it, something happened and I wasn't able to race. Um, I did my sprint here in Kingman. It was called the Dick Tomlin. It was, um, it was an event that was held in honor of Dick Tomlin. He's a accomplished Ironman competitor and, and author himself back in the day. And then I did Iron Girl in Vegas, which at the time they allowed the Olympic distance. I don't think they offer it anymore. And then after that, um, I trained in so many different times, probably four different times I trained and something would happen. I remember, um, right before I was going to race Tempe two weeks before that I slammed my right hand in my car door and I broke my middle finger, my ring finger, you name it. Like I just, I had these accidents and didn't get to it. I finally raced in 2016 was when I finally got to it. And I started in about 2010, 2009, around there. Well, clearly, uh, persistence is uh, a part of your character makeup um, and obviously has a lot to do with who you are and how you got through the next phase uh, in your life. So tell me a little bit about uh, your illness, how you came to realize that that was an issue and um, where things are at and how you got through all that. So um, in 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. It was two days after I turned 42 years old, I just went in for my annual checkup. Looking back on it, I had telltale signs, but I wasn't really paying attention to them. Um, Like one of them, I had a low grade fever that was persistent for, you know, two weeks and it would just spike and no other symptoms though. So I just treated it asymptomatically. When I went into the doctor, she told me to, you, you know, you have a low grade fever and we talked about it. And then she found the lump in my breast. And as soon as she touched it, like I knew right then that it was cancer. Um, and so I was diagnosed in 2017. My treatment began in January of 2018. And so lots of treatment through 2018 and 2019. And did triathlon have a role in helping you kind of deal with all of that and manage and get through? I would say absolutely. Um, 
I had just come out of um, a season for training. I was going to race in Boulder of 2017. So, you know, I was in my off time is what we call it. Um, and when I went in for my, my oncologist appointment, it was my very first, I already knew exactly how I wanted to handle my cancer battle. I, you know, I wanted a bilateral mastectomy and I wanted aggressive chemotherapy. I wasn't going to allow it to come back. So I was going to hit it as hard as I could. And all through my treatment, I basically was just focused. Like I would be on race day. I just, I knew I had to get up that morning, go to chemo, get it done, do my radiation, eat properly, allow my body to maintain what it could get some exercise. My, my biggest thing was that I wanted to burn that chemo out of my body as fast as I could. So just any kind of activity, making sure that I stayed mobile and I stayed up. Yeah. Uh, you know, having spoken with, uh, another of, uh, your compatriots as a, a breast cancer survivor recently, Dr. Tracy Cushing, uh, she was very focused in the same way and, and mentioned how, you know, keeping herself moving and keeping herself always doing whatever she could to keep going forward really was that motivator. And I, I hear the same things and it just is a very, um, it's, it's really a testament to how the sport, I think, you know, changes people and makes people adaptable and able to handle these kinds of, uh, you know, adversity. So, um, I'm really happy for you that it's worked out. So where, where are things at for you right now? I am NED. There's no evidence of disease. I'm all done with my surgeries, reconstruction, everything. So I'm just focusing on my life and moving forward. That's great. And uh, is there a surveillance? Uh, I, I ask only because my daughter had cancer uh, last year, and so she has to have surveillance. And so I'm just curious, do you have surveillance uh, things that go on? Yeah, for me, um, cancer is just, you know, the the diagnosis that just keeps giving. <laughs> it seems like anything that could go wrong with either treatments or surgeries. Um, yeah, they went wrong with me. And now my Arimadex that I have to take for another, I think I'm still on it for another six years it is causing low bone density in me. Yeah. So I get to get infusions every six months to try to keep my bone density up. I'm currently osteopenia, which is, you know, the beginning of osteoporosis. So yeah, yeah, it's fun. Fabulous. Uh, well, uh, back to more positive things. So, uh, you get finished with all of that. And, uh, at what point did you decide then uh, you wanted to be a coach? So, um, oddly enough, I got my Ironman certification in 2015. I got that certification, not because I was really thinking about being a coach. I just wanted to know as much as I could about the sport and training. Um, I kind of knew back then that something was wrong with my training because of the fact that I was either getting sick or something was happening where I couldn't race. So I wanted to know more about it. So I got my certification in 2015 and I created a group called She Strong. I never did anything with it. I just created the Facebook page and it sat there for years. Um, towards the end of my treatment, when my energy level started coming back, I decided I was going to go for a run. And, you know, I mean, triathletes, we take some time off. And then after our off season, we go out and we decide to do a workout. We're not looking to hit a PR. It's nothing great. It's just kind of get the body moving and get back to it. So I decided I was just going to go for a one mile run. Um, it was an epic failure. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. And, you know, I came home, I did the big dramatic cry in the shower. Like I could have won an Oscar for it. But then when I was done feeling sorry for myself, I just, you know, I just told myself, okay, I know how to start at the bottom. I'll just start at the bottom, slowly build myself up until I, you know, I can run a mile again. And that's kind of when it occurred to me, I was like, how many other women have done this? How many women went through cancer? They beat it. They're starting to feel better. And they're like, okay, I'm going to be better and stronger than what I was before cancer. And they go to the gym just to fail like I did. And how many of them don't have the knowledge that I do? And right then was when I decided that page for She Strong that I created, that's what this was going to be. I'm going to reach out to these other women. I'm going to let them know you don't have to be this person. You don't have to be weak and tired and not feel good. You've done the hard part. So let's focus on getting strong again. Let's focus on getting back to who we want to be and better than what we were before. And that was when She Strong was really created. I love that story. That's that's great. Uh, you know, triathlon is one, is a sport that I have loved for over two decades now because of community. And, and what you're describing is 
like a sub community within it. So uh, how, how many women have you got now uh, as part of that group? I'm proud to say we almost have 3,800 women. Wow. That's tremendous. And all triathletes or is it breast cancer survivors uh, who are just active in various ways? Um, it's just cancer survivors that are females. They don't have to be triathletes. They, they are not just breast cancer survivors. We have all kinds of cancer survivors in there. It's just any woman who either is currently battling or has gone through their battle and they're looking to get stronger and healthier. That's tremendous. Um, so tell me how you came to decide to host this first ever She Strong Triathlon this year. Well, you know, Jeff, that day in that shower, um, no joke, I had an epiphany. I, I saw myself standing. I have to interrupt just for a second to say there are so many things that come up in the shower. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a place. It's a place where a lot of epiphanies happen, isn't it? It is. For me, it's either in the shower or when I'm running. And obviously, I can't right? run at the time. And so there you go. All right. But I'm yeah. sorry. I interrupted. So in the shower, you came up with this epiphany again to have uh, this triathlon. Yeah, that same day when I was done crying, um, I, I did have this epiphany. I, I kind of saw myself standing before all these other women and giving this, you know, opening speech on race day about what we've gone through and look at us now and here we are. And I knew that doing a triathlon at some point in time was going to be in my future and hosting it for all these women. I I hope you're practicing because I, I can't imagine you're going to hold it together making that speech. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm not going to, I wouldn't be able to. Well, I'm terrified of public speaking. And so, yeah, I should probably start practicing now. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the triathlon. I know it's called the Monarch. Why, why the Monarch? So um, the butter, a butterfly has always been a huge staple in me and, and who I am. There's just something about it. I just love the, the progress and the transition of a butterfly, you know, they start out as this caterpillar. Nobody really likes them. It's kind of this ugly little creature. Um, they have their moment where they just sit back and then they emerge just this beautiful light creature that, you know, just brightens people's day. And so of course the monarch was the symbol instantly that I went for when I was thinking about this race, because that's exactly what us women are, especially if you've gone through cancer. Like you don't want to see pictures of me when I was in the middle of my battle. It was not pretty, but um, that, so that was the symbol that I, that I chose. And also because monarch means the sovereign or the queen, right? And so that's how I want these women to feel on race day. I want them to know, Hey, you did the ugly part, right? And here you are, you're a beautiful queen shining on your day. Well, I love the logo. I, I, did you design the logo? I did. So yes, thank you. I, well, the logo is going to be on um, my Instagram. It'll be on my Facebook and people should really take a look at it because it's really well done. I really love the way you integrated the swimmer, biker, runner, and the queen into the butterfly. It's really beautiful. And uh, it also is integrated into the metal, which is also uh, beautiful. Uh, tell us about the race itself, though. It's taking place in Kingman, which uh, I, I don't actually know where Kingman is. Where, where is Kingman? So Kingman is this little town um, between Las Vegas and California. So if you've ever traveled from Phoenix to California, you passed us on the 40. And it's just, it's a beautiful little community where I've raised my kids. A lot of love and compassion is here in Kingman. We're also famous for having Route 66. So the race will technically start down in Bullhead City. That's where the river is. It's going to be a 0.9 miles swim which is downhill assisted by the river. So, I mean, you can literally just put your wetsuit on and just kind of float <laughs> from point A to point B. So if you're scared of swimming, this is a good place to go. You're, I, you're probably going to get a PR. I mean, if you're really swimming, I know for a fact, you're going to get a PR. You're going to jump out of that river and then you're going to get on your bike. That's going to take you through Bullhead City and you get a, you get a bike in a monumental area. It's called Union Pass. So it comes up through from Bullhead to Kingman. You get to see this amazing rock house. It's historical. It's at the top of the peak. You will have to climb. It's not made to be easy. This is made to be a little bit difficult. The steepest, the incline is at a 4%, but it's just a gradual climb. So you use your gears, you gradually climb up this mountain, and then you have a seven mile downhill ride. 
where you just get a tuck and ride, recover for seven miles. You're going to come back up around um, the the freeway and into Kingman. And then you get to do a 6.7 mile run on historic Route 66. And you'll be finishing under, we have a new arch here in Kingman. So you'll be finishing underneath this just beautiful arch. And But it's not an Olympic distance, right? It seems to be a mo- sort of a modified between Olympic and uh, 70.3 distance. Yeah, there are so many firsts to this, Jeff. There's, I mean, it's going to be historical in so many ways. It is called a super half. It is the first ever super half because it's a total of 56 miles. Okay. And so it's did, not an Olympic and it's not. Did you come up with that or was that really just because of that's what you had available for distances? I came up with that because I have a lot of area that I could use for running and biking. And this was what I wanted. A lot of women that I've come across, they, they either are terrified to make that jump to a 70.3 or they just decide, well, I'm going to stay here in an Olympic because it's, it's comfortable for me. And so I wanted to bridge that gap. I wanted to give women the possibility to say, Hey, you know, I can go further on my bike and maybe I'll think about jumping into that 70.3. And are you offering a relay option for women who might uh, not be comfortable doing all three? Absolutely. There's, you can do a relay. And I know you're limiting it to, well, first of all, I should mention, this is a women only race, uh, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So as the dad of a, of a female cancer survivor, I'm shut out. And based on how you're describing it, I'm a little bit sad, but <laughs> it conflicts with the uh, world championship. So I, I'll, uh, I'll be racing just up the road uh, in St. George and it will be similar, uh, similar uh, views. So I'll, I'll take solace in that. Yeah. Um, but um, I will be thinking of you guys. And uh, I understand you're limiting it to a certain number, uh, 1,100, I think is what I saw. Yeah, there's 1,100 individual participants and 400 relay teams. And how are you doing so far? Is there, uh, are you getting, you doing well with the signups? So far, I'm doing well with signups, especially since I haven't really even advertised it. <laughs> awesome. So. That's great. And so I want to make sure that we let people know that there is still time to sign up and I will have the um, information in the show notes, as well as in all of my socials as to where people can find more information. If you yourself are not a cancer survivor, you know, someone who is, who might be interested in this, please do share this information. Uh, and, uh, it's not exclusively for cancer survivors, right? If, uh, if somebody wants to participate to support a cancer survivor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way that I set it up, we're going to have a couple really awesome things at this event. So you're going to be able to do a a video recording. It's going to be more, it's going to be like a photo booth, right? You know, you New Year's Eve, you go in, you can take pictures, but it's going to be a video camera. And so you can make a dedication for yourself or for whoever you're racing for. Like for me, my mother passed away in 2021 from cancer. So if I hadn't experienced cancer myself, I can go in there and I could be like, my name is Brandy Ramirez and I lost my mother to cancer in 2021. Mom, this race is for you. And so all of these women have this opportunity to go in and make this recording. As they cross the finish line, these videos will be playing in a reel at the finish line as as they're crossing. Um, And also for me, races, races are so exciting, right? You have all this build up to race day and then you go race morning. You know what transition's like. There's music playing. You make friends with the people next to you. You're zipping each other into the your wetsuits, helping, sharing, sunblock, everything. I've always kind of felt that when you cross that finish line, there's just this lull, right? It's like, oh, you did it. You get this box of food and then it's like, go to T2, get all your stuff and and get out of here kind of type feeling. And I have never liked that. Like I want to know the people that I raced with. I want to make friends. And so at our finish, it is not going to be like that. We're going to have margaritas. We're going to have street tacos. We're going to have music. Hopefully I can get people down there to give massages. I want it to be a celebration of life and a celebration of what you just accomplished. Okay. Well, first of all, I don't feel the lull after I finish a race, but um, I can respect where you're coming from on that. I do, however, love your finish line experience. And I think that that should be exported to other races. So (laughs) good on you for that. (laughs) I think all of it sounds tremendous. And uh, I I do... uh, I I look forward to hearing all about it afterwards and hearing uh, from people who participate. I know at least two of you who are doing it. So that's fantastic. Um, Let's just shift gears just a little bit. Uh, I'd love to hear about your plans for this year. I know you're doing your first Ironman. I'm curious why you chose Alaska for that uh, to be your first one. Yeah. So 
right out of the bat, I never wanted to do a 40.6. I was very comfortable with my 70.3. Never, you know, people would ask me, oh, when are you going to do it? I was like, never, I'm not doing a full Ironman. That's, that's <laughs> just not me. I don't want to do it. I don't need to do it. And there was just something about Alaska when that was announced. Um, I remember looking at it a couple different times and I was just like, wow, this just looks so beautiful. Then one of my athletes reached out to me and she's like, did you know? And I was like, yeah, they just announced it. And she was like, I'm doing it. I want to do it. I'm going to sign up. And I was like, okay, that's great. And it was in that same day, I reached out to my coach, Kurt Madden. And I was just like, there is something about this race. It just like keeps calling my name. And so we, you know, we chatted for a little bit and then he was like, well, I'm doing it. And I was like, oh, okay, we're fine. (laughs) I'm just doing it. I'm signing up. I'm going to stop thinking about it. And luckily I signed up the next day it was sold out. And so there is just something about it being the first one, just the pictures of it, the description of it. Like, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Sometimes the hardest thing is just signing up and just getting your head around the idea of doing it. And I, I will tell you, I went through the same kind of thing. I mean, when I first came to triathlon, I was like, yeah, I don't and I'm never doing one of those. And then I did a half. And I, I remember the first half that I did thinking, why would I ever want to do twice that? Like, no yeah. way. <laughs> uh, but you kind of get there eventually. And uh, I think what you'll find is uh, it is a remarkable experience. And your first finish line at a, a full is unlike anything else. So uh, I'm I'm jealous that you will get to experience that because I had my first finish many, many years ago. I still remember it very, very fondly. And, uh, that is in your future. So, um, uh, that's going to be a, a really exciting thing for you because it's a race that obviously you're very, very passionate about. And I think you're going to have a great time. What, uh, what else is on your schedule? You said you have two others. Yeah, I will be racing Oceanside. This is uh, my second oh, time great. doing Oceanside, April 2nd. And then I'm going back to Maryland. That um, Maryland was my first race last year from battling cancer. And of course, you know, we have that, oh, I could do a little bit better. <laughs> so, <laughs> Excellent. Maryland. Well, that's a great schedule. So you're going to have a really good year between those three races and then preparing for the Monarch. So uh, that's going to be a tremendous year for you. Um, where do you think uh, you're going to go with She Strong? Do you have plans for that? Or is that just going to kind of continue to grow organically? Or do you have something in mind? You know, I do have a couple plans for She Strong. One, um, one thing I'd like to mention from the Monarch we're going to take a, a portion of those proceeds and we're going to create some scholarships for girls who, if their grandmother, aunt's mother was a cancer um, patient and they lost them, we're going to help pay for their college. So um, that's a huge thing that I'm really proud about. I'm very passionate about it. And then I also want to create, um, we did our first ever She Strong Tri Camp last year here in Kingman. And I knew that I wanted to create some kind of retreat. You know, so um, me and a couple of the people on my team, we were like, let's just start putting money away. This retreat will maybe hopefully take shape. And of course, I was out running the other day (laughs) and I decided because I knew I wanted it to be based on health. Um, I think that women who have gone through cancer are really overlooked. You know, there's all this money for research, which yes, we do need to come up with a cure. We need to stop this disease from affecting so many people, but we also really need to recognize the people who have gone through it because it's not easy. And there's a lot of us that we really don't know who we are when we're done. You know, you come through it and all you've been doing is fighting for a year. And then you get to this place and you're just kind of like, okay, well, I did that. Now what? And so I wanted to create a resort where um, women can come out and meet other women. You can have, I want to have, of course, a a team of psychologists. We're going to do some yoga. I wasn't really 100% what I wanted it to be on, but obviously I want it to be about triathlons. So I want to incorporate the swim, bike, run. So maybe five years down the road, that's our, our big project, is creating this retreat where women can apply and they can just come to it for free for four days and, and just kind of help them rebalance their life. Well, Brandy, I have no doubt that you will succeed because you're clearly a force of nature. Triathlon and cancer have uh, shaped you and uh, 
the end result is someone who clearly is very motivated, very um, capable, and uh, is doing great things for herself and for others around her. So um, I'm really excited to see how the Monarch goes this year. I'm excited to see how your season goes. And uh, I look forward to hearing all about what the future is going to hold for She Strong, for you, for Monarch, and for all of the women that you are so positively impacting. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for being here today on the TriDoc podcast. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. And that's it for this episode. The TriDoc podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sangoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services or in attending the upcoming triathlon camp that will be taking place in St. George, Utah in April, then please visit try.coaching.com or livesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot more information about me, the services I provide, and that triathlon camp. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121. Train hard, train healthy.